0: 27, we're not only uh, entering the, the end of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it's 28 chapters nearing the end, but we're entering the climactic events of the whole Gospel story, into the crucifixion, and the death, and the burial, and then the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, this is where everything has been headed In Matthew's gospel and story. Four times through Matthew. We have heard Jesus say to his disciples. That he must suffer. He must be crucified. And so the crucifixion event. Casts this shadow that reaches all the way back. To the first chapter of Matthew. And the birth of Christ. And even though these are events that we uh, know took place. Nearly two millennia. Ago. As we read them, as we contemplate them, we are in a way entering a kind of holy ground. Because these acts of God, more than any other act, reveal to us the very heart of the God we worship. And his very redemptive purposes. It's, it is a kind of holy ground. But it is a very different kind of holy ground. It's, it's not the sacred place of a temple. Or the holy place of a sanctuary. There's no throne. There's no exalted king here. Matthew and the gospel writers identify this space and this place as Golgotha. The place of a skull. This is a place of mockery. Of open shame. Public humiliation. Gruesome suffering. And the shedding of blood. And we, from Matthew, give our attention to that place, to that ground. That is the ground, more than any other, that gives shape to us as Christians and as Christ followers. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 27. Listen now to God's word. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, or praetorium, And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him. And led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They made or compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him, Jesus, wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. When you think about the biographies of great or influential figures throughout history, or perhaps even still living today, could be a theologian that comes to mind, could be an artist, perhaps a scientist or sports figure, could be St. Augustine or Michelangelo and Albert Einstein, one thing you will never, ever read in any biography about them is that they were born in order to die. If the figure is no longer living, there's usually a mention of their death in the biography. Maybe there's some detail about how they actually died. Could have been full of pain and prolonged could have been an accidental death. Maybe it was an ordinary death. Maybe it was heroic. But they are never said to be born for the purpose that they would die. That's true of all religious uh, founders as well. It's true of Muhammad. It's true of the Buddha. Uh, Their deaths are mentioned, but they did not come in order to die. They weren't born in order to die. Which is why Matthew and and all four of the Gospels, as a genre, are so unique. Not only is the death central in the story, but the meaning, the purpose of his death, is what takes center stage. What does this man's death mean? What are the Gospel narratives as a genre? They're hard to classify. If you ask the world and you came and read this and came to the crucifixion, they might conclude, well, it's a tragedy. But it's not a tragedy at all. The Gospels end, all four of them we know, with the resurrection of Christ. He's risen. He's our reigning Lord over all things. But they're not mere biographies either. They're not simply recalling Jesus' main events of his life. The overwhelming emphasis and thrust in all four Gospels, by the amount of time they spend, is on his death. Which is why the cross, more than any other event or theme, is what gives shape to the whole of the New Testament. What does this death mean? What does it mean to live under the cross now? What did the cross accomplish? One place to see this is Paul's words in Galatians 6, verse 14. They capture very well the centrality that the cross plays throughout the scriptures. When Paul said to the churches in Galatia, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is, so powerful was the cross, this event that Jesus endured for Paul, that it put the world to death. That is, in all of the world's glory, all of its attraction, outside of Christ, the world is crucified. And something in Paul was put to death, he says, and I to the world. His own heart, his own desire was dead to the attractions of the world. You have a complete transformation that happened. Why? Because of the death of Jesus Christ. And though the cross becomes the central lens, the central message of the church, that message flows out of a historical event. That's what we are considering. An event that occurred. And I want us to see just a few things that, that this event reveals to us the first is what the cross reveals to us about the world Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1 the word of the cross there's the theme is foolishness to those who are perishing and then he quotes from Isaiah As it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So that the cross exposes the sin, the spiritual blindness, and the unbelief of the world as to what the truth is. The cross exposes it. And that sin, that blindness is expressed in the very suffering that those around Jesus cause him. So the suffering and the shed blood of Christ is a picture of the gross sin and spiritual blindness of the world. Uh, The gospel writers, all four of them, including Matthew, give actually little detail about the actual crucifixion that Jesus endured. In our text, it's simply in English, four words in verse 35. They had crucified him. But the reality was that the crucifixion was horrific. The late pastor James Boyce said the cross was so offensive to the Romans that they refused to allow their own citizens to be crucified no matter what they had done. Cicero, the Roman scholar of the first century century, B.C. said crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. Now, this is what Jesus endures. But think about what Jesus has already endured up to verse 27. It was out of envy for his popularity in his ministry that the Jews accused him of blasphemy. And they arrested him. They tried him before the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court, and then they delivered him over on Good Friday to the Romans and Pontius Pilate. The Romans then accuse him of treason, and under pressure, Pilate releases Barabbas, this notorious criminal. And they hand Jesus over to be crucified, they sentence him to death. But then we're told in verse 26, the verse just before our text, that they scourged Jesus. They flogged him. So upon the sentence of death, before the crucifixion, the Roman legal system allowed for flogging. It was, in fact, commonplace. Normally, a person was tied to a post, their hands above their head, to a poster column, And a soldier would then take a whip with usually about three cords attached to it. And in those cords were interwoven pieces of metal and bone, as well as, at the end, balls of lead. And the victim would be whipped repeatedly. Their flesh would be ripped open by the bone and metal, the balls of lead, uh, creating contusions. Sometimes the flogging would lead to death. And Jesus has already endured this at the point in which we come to verse 27. But what happens in verse 27 to 31 in the Praetorium is something different. It was not a part of the legal system. There, we're told that the soldiers took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered around him a whole battalion, about 600 men. It's really, for them, a kind of show. And what unfolds is what one author called barracks room humor. They mock him. This fool, calling himself a king, what a joke. And of particular emphasis in Matthew's gospel is the word mocking. The mocking that comes from the people. Look at the text in verse 29, there in the praetorium. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! It's sarcasm, it's mockery. Again in verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him. Even later, as Jesus hangs on the cross, in verse 39, it says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. And then you have in verse 41, the chief priests and elders mocked him. Once again, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. And back in the praetorium, in the governor's headquarters, all the actions of the people around Jesus communicate and characterize, are characterized by mockery, ridicule, scorn of this self-claimed king. Notice what they do to him. They strip him and they put a scarlet robe on him. This is kingly attire, but it's all ridicule, humiliation. It's out of mockery. They're dressing him up. They put a stick in his hand to emulate a king's staff or a scepter. And then they take these vines found in the Middle East with long, lengthy spikes. They twist it together and they crunch it onto his head. It's all to mock and to humor themselves. And every time they mock him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews, they don't mean it at all. They mean the opposite. They believe it's just mere irony. Who is this who thinks himself a king about to be crucified? But the deeper irony is that the king they mock, the one they mock as king, is king. Sin and unbelief has blinded the minds of unbelievers and the suffering and cross of Christ reveals it it reveals it today as much as it did in our lord's day in his earthly ministry and his actual cross how people respond to the cross reveals whether they are people who are people who see and believe who have trusted in the lord or people who are spiritually And our God chose this means, this lowly, humiliating, suffering, public, and shameful symbol to reveal to us who do believe who holds the power, who holds wisdom. That's why Paul said to the church in Corinth, the cross is foolishness to the world. But then he goes on and he says, God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong, what is lowly and despised to bring to nothing things that are. Worship and allegiance to a man suffering on a cross makes no sense to a spiritually blind world. But for those whose eyes have been opened to see his grace and his salvation, he is our hope, he is our everything. That's how radical the divide is that the cross reveals. And the cross reveals more. As Jesus makes his way to Golgotha, the meaning of the cross goes even deeper. Throughout this crucifixion narrative, in verses 32 to 44, there are several, in fact five occasions, in which the actions of those around Jesus are fulfillment of Old Testament reference and and prophetic words. Five different times. In verse 34, as the soldiers offer Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, a bitter herb, often poisonous, this is a reference, as we heard earlier, to Psalm 69. A psalm focused, as we heard, on the suffering of a faithful Israelite whose attackers keep coming and keep coming, and they're piling more and more suffering upon him. Then you have three references, all from Psalm 22, that are played out. The dividing of his garments, in verse 35. Uh, those deriding him and wagging their heads, in verse 39. The chief priests and the elders mocking him, in verse 43. They're all references to Psalm And that is the psalm that a few verses later that we will consider next week is filling the mind and the heart of our Lord as he is on the cross and he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you have a fifth reference, the two robbers crucified with Jesus. A reference to Isaiah 53. For many of us, a well-known chapter in Scripture. The prophetic words of Isaiah about the coming suffering servant. Familiar words in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. of particular focus is that as Jesus is suffering at the hands of others as he is hung upon the cross he is doing so for a people it's on behalf of others we get that from the suffering servant text he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed For our iniquities. So he suffers in substitution for and on behalf of the people of God. So this is a suffering not merely from something. It is a suffering for a people. We all know to varying degrees what it means to suffer from something to suffer from an ailment or a disease or a physical pain, to suffer from the loss of a loved one. But it is a different thing to suffer for someone. It's even different than entering into someone else's suffering, though our Lord does that as our priest, as our high priest. To mourn with those who mourn, the scripture gives us direction. But this is different. This is a suffering in substitution for a people on behalf of someone. And so inherent in the meaning of the cross is a God who suffers for his people. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us the apostle peter in 1 peter 2 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree the jews understood that the image of the cross was a curse it was the image of a criminal it was the Im- image of a sinner doomed to death and destruction that's why paul says in galatians chapter 3 verse 13 Quoting the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21. And he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, on a cross, on a beam. Jesus takes the curse of sin and the wrath of God as a substitute in our place. As John Calvin put it, he took our place and became a sinner, subject to the curse, acting in our name. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Did he die for you? Has he taken your place on the cross? That you would know his forgiveness. Do you know the love of God? That love for you. And the cross is just that. It is a demonstration of the love of God. This is a love that is sacrificial. This is a love that redeems. Uh, This is a love that gives. Next week begins... A season that Christians in many, many parts of the world call Advent. Advent means nearing, arrival, coming. We anticipate the celebration of Christ's coming and birth into the world. But he comes into the world and he is born in order that he would go to the cross and be crucified and risen from the dead. He comes. To give his life. It is a giving love. This love. R.C. Sproul said the love of God is the love of a God who gives. The most famous verse in the Bible underscores this fact. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. What's remarkable is how the cross throughout the New Testament becomes such a primary paradigm and lens that gives shape to the church, to Christian faith, to Christian living. We're told in verse 32 that as Jesus, beaten and bruised, makes his way from the praetorium to Golgotha, he is carrying a cross, a beam, And it says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they made this man, they compelled this man to carry his cross. Little is known about Simon. We have one verse here about him. Mark tells us he is a father to Alexander and Rufus. And Mark says, this man was simply coming In from the country. He's just a passerby. The church father, Athanasius, said Simon represents the common man. He represents you, he represents me. Here he is. He's passing by. He's coming in from the country. He's living his life when all of a sudden, Providence pulls him out of the crowd and he is compelled to pick up and help carry this cross. This is what happens to every Christian. They are going about their life, passing through, coming in from the country, going to work, and then the cross intersects. Jesus shows up. Jesus comes into that person's life. And hopefully we all have that story. How we met the Lord Jesus Christ. How his cross... Redeemed us. I want to leave us with a few ways that the cross should be giving shape to our Christian faith. First, the cross calls us to be crucified. To crucify the old nature. The sin nature in us. It's really astonishing but true that Paul uses the verb in the New Testament to crucify almost as many times of himself as he does of the Lord Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2. In Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Uh, Put to death, mortify and crucify the sin in you, that which is of your flesh, Or your earthly nature. This is the great calling of sanctification and growth in Christ. It is a cruciformity, a cruciformed life. It it is a life shaped living under the cross, putting to death that which is earthly in us. What needs to be put to death in your flesh? Secondly, the cross calls us to a life of love. But this love has a particular shape. It is a cross-formed love. We know what our Lord has taught us and commanded us. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Love takes shape and definition by the cross. Romans 5, eight. but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is a costly and sacrificial love. What did our God do in Christ to demonstrate this love? He moved toward us. He came into our world. He engaged our lives. This is a love that does not shy away from other people. This is a love that is defined by moving toward other people, to engage them in their world, to seek their good. Who is God calling you to love? And then finally, the cross calls us to give up our lives for the worship and glory of God. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy to God. This is your spiritual worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Though COVID has disrupted, it seems like, so much in people's lives, ministry, worship, there, from the beginning, was a haunting question, and it continues to surface for me. And it centers around risk and the worship of God. That while the world and our many societies around us, some of their greatest aim is the preservation of human life, human life has great value, the protection of life. Yet, what worth? What value would we ever assign to the worship of God? To devotion to God? What risk are God's people willing to take that the gospel and the glory of God would be made known? Well, we, see, we see that worth. We see that worth in Christ in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, uh, there's nothing that we uh, can offer to to repay what you have done for us. But we pray, O Lord, that the cross would increasingly define our lives, that it would increasingly take hold of our heart and our Love and our affection in life for you, for our brothers and sisters, even for our enemies. We pray that our lives, Lord, would be lived out through our life in you, through what you have done on our behalf. We pray that it would grip us, that it would humble us, that it would break us in ways that we would be vessels used for your purposes. Lord, how we, we thank you for the redemption that we have, that you have substituted your, your son for us. We, we pray that you would, by your grace, uh, cause us to create margin, space, and time to think upon these things, that they would rest And sink deeply into our hearts and take deep root that we would bear much fruit. So we pray out of it, Lord, that you would cause the fruit of the Spirit to take shape in and through us. And we pray, Lord, that that the cross of Christ would uh, cause us to be one. that, That we would have joy and thanksgiving together as your people for your great work in us and for us. And we pray all these things with thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.